Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Needs, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Elvin. Hi, Sarah Ellen, are you there? Hi, did how you are get... you this evening? All right, I was going to say, did you get rained out? Did you get blown away? 
<laughs> no, for some reason the song was continuing on on my end, and I had to hit a manual stop. So I'm here. Oh, oh, interesting. So did you survive the hurricane? We did not have much of anything from the hurricane at all. So we hardly, we did, really didn't have any, maybe a couple bands here or there. We've had heat, but um, moisture, but not a lot of rain. Mm. Well, we got torrential rain and very high winds, but not really the full brunt of the hurricane. There were definitely, you know, trees down. Mm. Our power was out, and we called up the power provider, and they were wonderful. They said, yes, we're in storm conditions. We will get there Mm. as soon as we can to restore your power. But please understand, there's a lot we have to do. (laughs) Wow. Wow. The worst storm that we have seen. And we were without power for a couple of hours. It was really hardly even worth mentioning. I think that I mentioned, however, that the peach tree had so many peaches that it broke itself and fell down. And, and, the so, be- and so before the hurricane, since we had class this weekend, I got all my students and said, please come and help me pick the peaches. Yay! I was afraid the hurricane was going to, you know, smash them to the ground and rot them. And we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bags full of peaches. Wow. Oh, Justine said... You have a bumper crop of shiso this year, too. Obviously, you should make umiboshi. Mm, do tell. What is that? Umiboshi is a lacto-fermented hard peach. These are hard peaches. Even when they're ripe, they stay hard. They need to be cooked or they need to be lacto-fermented. So we're going to in the next couple of days, set up a couple of crocs. And we're going to layer the um, peaches, many of which are quite green. And shiso, I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking of like, there's so much shiso that it can actually be thinned out and really cutting like whole stalks of it with the leaves and it just coming into flower and putting that in the crock. And then kind of doing that, a layer of that, and then a layer of salt, and then a layer of the peaches, and a layer of shiso, and a layer of salt, and a layer of the peaches. And, of course, like any lacto-fermentation, <coughs> the ultimate thing that you have to do, the thing that really makes it lacto-fermented, is you have to exclude air. So either you have a uh, piece of cloth and then a really tight wooden lid that goes down into your crock, or more modern people tend to do, is a piece of plastic, a piece of cloth and a piece of plastic with some kind of um, bag of sand or weight that can be evenly distributed over the lid to keep out oxygen because lacto-fermentation is an anaerobic process. Mm. I was kind of horrified 
when I went online to see what kind of information was being put out about that, to see several uh, places that were suggesting to people that they open their lacto ferments and stir them every day. Uh oh. Right. That's that's about the only thing you can do wrong. Oh wow. And this weekend we made uh, what I call a basic lacto ferment. We took a vegetable, in this case radishes, sliced it very thinly, put salt on it, and massaged it. And massaged it, and massaged it, and massaged it until it got very, very wet. And then we smooshed it into a jar. And we did that smooshing and massaging and smooshing and massaging until the whole jar was filled with salted radish and salted radish juice, which Mm. had risen up to the top of all the radishes that were in there. You don't have to add the organism that makes it a lactoferment because it's in the air. It's on your skin. It's on the vegetables. It's already there. So that's why I call this like the classic thing. You just salt down the vegetable like sauerkraut, get the juice flowing, get it in a container that excludes the air, and that can be just like a regular jar with a lid screwed on it. You don't have to do anything fancy. And then we made um, the more like modern classic lacto-ferment where you cut up your vegetable and you just put it in a jar and push it down and put salt on it and add some whey. Mm. And in fact, because we had massaged the vegetable um, and we used a purple turnip, which is very beautiful. It's staining everything in the jar purple. Uh, purple turnip, a kohlrabi, and the remainder of the radishes. So three bands of color. And we added whey, and the students said, where do I get whey? And I'm like, I would buy yogurt, and you let it sit, and some clear liquid comes to the top, that's whey. And, of course, that's a source of lactobacillus. So that's kind of a, a fail-safe, Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That the the plastic just depends on the lactobacillus that's on the vegetable, on your hands, and in the air. And then the new classic is let's just add some to be sure. Okay. And they all sat out. We made a few more. And they all sat out um, in their jars, tightly covered. Uh, we made them on Saturday, so they sat the rest of Saturday, all day Sunday, all day Monday. And I put them in the refrigerator this afternoon. So they sat out for three days. They look nice and bubbly. And now they're in the refrigerator. And by this Saturday, we can start tasting them. The lacto-fermentation should be, you know, far enough along, complete enough that opening it and letting some oxygen in it isn't going to spoil it at this, at this point. Okay. So I wait a full week before I open it up and I make sure that it looks bubbly and that it really looks like it's, you know, things are happening in there, that there's an actual fermentation happening. Mm. Very inspiring. I'm going to try this this week. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's, and many of the students said, you know, I really wanted to do like the fermentation, but I was frightened by it. They said, oh, you know, all the, the instructions and you have to sterilize your jars and this. They said, you didn't sterilize your jars. I said, no, I washed them. But they're definitely clean jars. And they also noted that, like, in between vegetables, I would take my cutting board and knife and rinse them. So I was keeping a controlled work surface. But no, I don't think sterilize. Again, you want something that's present. And sterilizing, what's that going to do? Is that going to absolutely ensure that you only get the organism you want? Probably not. Mm. If you were doing it commercially, you would need to sterilize, of course. If you wanted a consistent product every single time, you would need to sterilize, of course. But I love complexity and variety. Mm-hmm. One of the experiments, one of the experiments that we did was, you remember that I started a sourdough starter that Jennifer was here in the late winter and brought her sourdough starter with her and made bread. And a couple of months later, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get that yeast that Jennifer brought. I'm sure it's still in the air. And I set a little trap, right, of sugar and water and flour, and I set it out, and sure enough, I got Jennifer's sourdough. And so I've been keeping that going now for all these months. And then I started a sourdough with a package of yeast from the supermarket. I went to the supermarket, and I got some Red Star yeast, and I dissolved my Red Star yeast in some lightly sweetened water, warm water, and I let it bloom, and then I added some flour to it, and I I made a very uh, loose dough, like a waffle or a pancake dough, and I let that sit out, and that was already yeasted. I didn't have to get the yeast from the air, but I let it rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall, and then I got sour dough because it soured. And I used both of those sourdough starters to make a loaf of bread. And we, I served each of those loaves of bread. And the students were amazed at how different they tasted. And hmm. one of the things that we noticed all day long was how much our palates responded to complexity. This sourdough starter that I made with the yeast has that yeast in it, that saccharomyces, right? And it's probably like 99% that saccharomyces because I put a whole envelope of it in there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though the dough soured, it's still basically just that one yeast. Whereas the one I got from the air, I didn't get just one thing from the air, now did I? Complexity. Right, complexity. And that's the wonderful thing about all of these lacto-ferments and the saccharomyces, the organism which we share the most DNA. Yeast and us were close. So we had a fun time. We sampled herbal wines. We had sourdough bread. 
We had cheese and yogurt and fermented milk products like kefir. We just uh, looked at the world of holy ferment. Yum. It's a class that always makes Mm. And then today, um, I sat with Justine, and we did videos for the mentor students. You know, the um, mentor site has really had a lot of information added to it recently, and really doing our best to uh, put good stuff there, and to think about the mentored students, and that far-flung web of women all the way, you know, to Australia and South America, far places, and to uh, include them in on class because that's what COVID has taught us is mm. that we don't need to be afraid to cast our circles wide. Yeah. Blessed be. Blessed be. We have as our guest tonight, Danielle Ryan Broda, a pivotal voice in the nutrition and functional mushroom and adaptogen space. She wants us to know how important functional foods and herbal medicine are. She brings her passion and her expertise and her deep love for fungi to everything she does. So stay with us until 9 o'clock East Coast time or come on back and you'll get to hear Danielle Ryan Broida. What's been up with you? Well, we have had definite, um, first a little introduction to fall, and now it has warmed way back up into the 90s, and we've had some Catskill days, as I like to call them, where there's so much moisture in the air that it's just wet stepping outside. Um, we've done some work on the barn, so we've got the barn looking lovely and ready to go into winter in better shape than last year. Um, feeling good about that. And the goldenrod here is blooming. So I am very much looking forward to doing my first goldenrod harvest. That is a plant that I have a strong relationship with. She has helped me out a lot. So um, that's been really exciting this last few days. Yes, White Feather and I went for a walk this afternoon, and we just had to stand in awe of the goldenrod. It's so beautiful this year. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And seeing her all over this new landscape and really getting to see where she's shining herself is just, yeah, it's been fun to, to watch her pop up everywhere. Um, and I'm glad she's so abundant and lovely. <laughs> and for those of you, who haven't heard, uh, goldenrod cannot provoke any allergic reaction in anyone. How can you prove this to yourself? The pollens that are allergenic, that cause allergic reactions, are wind-borne pollens. And any pollen that's carried by an insect 
is not going to be an allergen. And part of that is simply quantity, that the wind-blown pollens have to be made in very large quantity. And the insect-carried uh, pollens need only be made in very tiny quantity. And when you sit by a milkweed patch, what you see is so many pollinators. Partly because it's one of the of the things that bloom even as we're coming into fall, right? Mm-hmm. As the other plants are turning their attention to seeds and fruits, the goldenrod springs up and says, "Hi, I'll flower." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always like to wait to harvest so that the pollinators can have nice long time with her as well. So I can't wait too long, but I'm, I'm very mindful of that because they do just really delight in the goldenrod and the asters. So I haven't seen too many asters around yet, but um, maybe when some more things bloom, I'll be able to spot them more easily and say, there you are. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the wonderful star family, Astar, Astarte, the star, Aster, fulfilling our early fall days with their beautiful starry presences. Mm-hmm. Well, are there any callers on the line? We have lots of callers on the line, and I'd like to remind everyone to please, if you have a question and would like to speak with Susan this evening, do press 1 on your telephone keypad. That will get you in the queue, and we'll know that you have a question and would like to come on the line. At this time, there is one caller who has pressed 1 to raise their hand, and that caller is calling from the 613 area code. From the 613, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. How are you tonight? Hi. You know, I feel so good just hearing you, your voice, and uh, um, I, I'm not. I'm feeling pretty good right now, but all day I was not feeling well. I have had. I'm 63 years old. Perfect, beautiful health. Been following your nourishing herbal infusions for seven years, and I made some bad decisions. I think. Um, my, um, I had some swelling on my tailbone. I phoned you in, bef- phoned in before, and I couldn't get rid of it with with what we were doing. Um, I took some naproxen, and it it did take the bruising feeling away, but it didn't really. I'm now seeing a pelvic floor specialist that is helping me with that. But anyway, the damage was done by the naproxen to my stomach. I, the doctor thinks because um, I just ended up in the emergency room with pain in my stomach. My whole body was just, it was just so terrible. Um, Oh, my goodness. Now, let let me just check something here before we go on. When you say stomach, is that above or below your nasal? Above. Above. Okay. Yeah, and but it also feels like it's up in my uh, like when I when I have the so now the doctor put me on 
a, a thing. Well, I put myself on it. Uh, All right, good for you. Yeah, I have pentoprazole, magnesium, and I've read in your book. I have it in front of me. I just got it out yesterday. I've been in such a panic. I haven't been able to um, to read uh, properly, think properly, and finally I got your book out now. I am thinking better. I'm keeping myself calmer. I've been just a panic-ridden person, and um, so I can see that this is a very it helped me stay out of the emergency room, that's for sure. But I've been on it six weeks. It has not improved since then, uh, except for not to get into the emergency room. And so um, the doctor wants, I've been on six weeks. She wants me to go double it. Well, I tried to double it, but it didn't make me feel good. So I went back to one pill a day and I looked into your cabbage cure and things like that because she wants, she thinks it could be an ulcer or something that, so I'm thinking maybe I, it wouldn't hurt to just try the cabbage cure, and I, I've been I tried it uh, for for the last couple of days. I've got it in the fridge, but I don't. I I just want some input from you. How can I get off this and get back onto a better healing track for myself? I'm a I'm, I just my doctor just I've lost faith completely, and it's so hard to get a hold of her. Anyway, it takes forever to make it up for two weeks to talk to her about anything. And um, I'm that's just so reading dist- some... That's so distressing, isn't it? It's so distressing. I feel very lost. And I, I go... Yes. And, you know, fun, it's funny because... And it's been like this since July... It's May 18th that I took the naproxen. July 11th, I started the pantoprazole. And um, I... I... Um, it's just been for so long I've been like this that it's like, and, and all of a sudden I'll feel absolutely perfectly my most perfect self and it'll be like for a day or half a day or maybe two days or three days and I think, oh good, it's gone and then it will come back in and I am absolutely devastated. It's really interesting to see how the stomach and the and the mental health go together. Like I go, I, I really crash. I feel like I'm I'm very I'm dying kind of thing. I feel like there's no hope. Like it feels very depressing. And then all of a sudden, I'm back to my most positive, wonderful self. And it's just a roller coaster. Have you ever heard of such a thing? That's difficult. I that is really difficult to go through those kinds of swings and yeah. to maintain your center. Yes. I'm trying very hard to do it and I'm but I get very so, tired when I'm feeling well. Yes. So where is your center? Well oh my center Where's the inner where's the energetic center of the human body? It's in the pelvis. Yes. Two finger widths below the navel. Right. Yes. So, what I envision is that you take some time and bring your attention to that spot. 
your center, and ask for guidance. Okay. Pretty much say what you've said to me. I'm at my wit's end here. Sometimes I feel fine and sometimes I don't feel fine. I don't understand. Can you show me what I need to do because I'm not willing to continue on the drug scene? I think that's what you said. Yes. I did thought I thought only So what 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 did the doctor test you for Heliobacter? The H pylori. Heliobacter is a Yes. For H pylori, Heliobacter pylori. No, she she's just asked me to go get a blood test for that. Okay. But I haven't done it. So we don't Okay, so so she is um, looking to see if there is active um, ulceration. Now, what you need to know about that test is that the vast majority of people have H. pylori in their stomach and are healthy. Okay. And if you are positive, she's going to want to give you antibiotics that will get rid of it. Okay. That may not be the best thing to do. Okay, I was In wondering fact, about that. In fact, for some people, it backfires. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out that Heliobacter like all bacteria, has a helpful side as well as an unhelpful side. Mm-hmm. And mm. when you get rid of it, you get rid of the help as well. Mm. Mm. So the cabbage cure is the way to go. Cabbage and potato. Well, that would help if you, in fact, have an ulcer. I'm a little concerned, really, about what's going on here. Because certainly you took how much naproxen? 20 days. You took it for 20 days. How much? Um, It was 500... I think, milligrams. It was very strong. You took 500 milligrams once a day for 20 days? Yes. I think that's what it was. I I don't have it in front of me, and I don't... And while you were taking that, did you have any stomach upset? No. I'm not sure that I agree that it has anything to do with the naproxen. Okay, that's interesting. I know I've been soul searching and I've been coming to some very, getting some huge insights into my childhood and my relationship with my family. And I've been really getting some huge, huge adult understanding of what happened. And um, I know it's coinciding with this, but I keep thinking it's all in my head, but it feels very physical. Your head isn't part of your physical. 
Of Of course our bodies manifest our thoughts and our beliefs and our feelings. Yes. Wouldn't we want it that way? <laughs> oh my goodness, I would love it if I could. I'm going to see a medical intuitive in a week. Uh-huh. Hope and she and will help me. Thing, and that's a good thing to do, but I really want you to prepare for that by what we're talking about. I want you to use your intuition. I want you to listen to your body. The answer is not going to come from somebody else who solves the riddle for you. The Mm. answer is not going to be the next pill or the next (coughs) insight that someone gives you. The answer has to come from your stomach, right? My stomach, right? Is that what you said? Your stomach. You start at your center and find out what the center has to say, and the center hopefully has a direct line to your stomach. Okay, and then I do feel it up to my throat. Mm-hmm. The classic herb, classic herb for that sense of um, the acid coming up your throat is dandelion, just before yes. and during the meal. Okay, yes. So if you have any dandelion, that's certainly a possible thing that you could use, and it wouldn't interfere with anything else that you're doing. Okay. I could, I, um, since I'm run out, I ran out of my dandelion vinegar and I haven't made any more, um, could I, I'll buy some tincture and maybe I could have a a dropper full? Yeah, that's a good. Yes, or uh, dandy, or if there's any dandelion around you, you could harvest the leaves and cook those up and have a tablespoon or two before you eat. Tablespoon of the cooked up leaves. Yes. Okay. Dandelion works in almost any form. Boiled. Very. You mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What I usually do is I boil some water and I pour the boiled water over my dandelion in another pan and then I turn up the heat under that pan so the water comes to a boil again with the dandelion in it. And then I usually pour that water off because the wild dandelion can be pretty bitter. And we're not losing nutrition when we do that, so it's a fine thing to do. And I have that, you know, pot of boiling water, and so now I pour boiling water on the tantilion greens a second time in their pan, and again bring them up to a boil and let them cook just for a minute or two, and then pour that water off. And then I pour a third water onto my dandelion greens, and turn the fire up and bring it up to a boil. And this time I turn the fire down 
but let it continue to cook with a lid on it until the greens are tender enough. And only you will know when they are tender enough for you. For me, that's 15, 20, 25 minutes. Okay. And then I take those hot greens, I put them in a dish, and I put tamari, olive oil, and freshly sliced garlic on them. That's dandelion italiano. It will stay good in your refrigerator for, oh, a week to ten days. And some stores actually sell dandelion greens, so sometimes you can even buy them at the supermarket. And if you do, you may not need to pour boiling water over them three times. They might be done in two times or even one time. Taste them each time so that you can tell. Okay. Okay. Well, well that feels very comforting. Um, yes. Tanty Lion is very comforting. She is such a good friend, and she's always there for us. Uh, can I just say that I, I mean, I've talked to you about this before, but you don't remember exactly because it's been a while, but um, I had the colonoscopies just before all this happened, and the preps were so hard on me that I felt as though my stomach and my esophagus was being ripped open, like it was, just, I had a big ball of gas, and I, I could, it was like for hours, I was just rocking trying to get that gas out. And then I had a little bit of dandelion vinegar, and it made me throw up the water. And luckily, it just took the relief away. Like, it was, it just took, gave me relief. But I felt I had done damage then. I wonder if, do you sense that could have been part of this damage that I've done? It is certainly what I most dislike about colonoscopies. Exactly, exactly. It's just brutal. It is too brutal for a diagnostic test on a healthy person. I certainly understand that if we have someone and we're worried about their health, sometimes a diagnostic test that can harm them could be called for. But to take healthy people and, and have them go through... Um, what you went through, it can't be promoting of health. Mm-hmm. And how can a test that doesn't make us healthy be good for us? Mm-hmm. So, however, and a very important point, is that your gut can heal itself and can heal itself very rapidly because tissue turnover is very rapid in the gut. Oh, this is what I needed to hear. And so what I want you to do is not focus on you damaged yourself here or you damaged yourself there, all of which might be true. I'm not in any way arguing with you about it. But let's move on from there to how you heal yourself. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And the tissues will repair themselves. Absolutely. 
Okay. I needed to know that because it feels like I've damaged myself beyond because it's been so long. But I'll talk to my... You have not damaged yourself. It's possible that you ingested things that made your body very unhappy. But you haven't damaged yourself. Okay. Thank you. It's important that you hear that and you um, forgive yourself. Oh, I'm, yes, I'm having We always make the best decision we can at any given time, given the information we have at that time. And the information could change five minutes later, leading us to say, oh, I wouldn't have made the decision I made five minutes ago if I'd known this, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. What's most important is not to second-guess yourself, but to go on to what you want. Okay. It's not going to help you to find out what you did wrong, is it? Right. Okay. I need to move forward? Yes. And trust that my body knows how to heal itself? Yes. And And that you're going to work with things like dandelion, marshmallow root for its soothing, cooling, healing abilities. You said you're drinking nourishing herbal infusions. Yes. When you make comfrey leaf infusion... Have at least one cup of it hot with a spoon of honey. Okay. I've got some in the fridge. Good. Great. Now, we were talking about lacto-fermented things. And cultivating gut flora by eating a wide variety of fermented things. So when you're talking to your center and when you're talking to your stomach, you know, like you can, like say, do you want more of this? Do you want more mushrooms? Do you want more yogurt? Do you want more sauerkraut? Do you want more? I don't know if you heard me a couple of weeks ago laughing a little bit because my vegan body worker said to me, you need to eat more meat. And we both laughed and just she said, I'm sorry, that's what your body said. Your body said it needs more meat. You know it's not coming from me. I said, I know it's not coming from you. I hope this has been helpful for you. It really, really has, Susan. Thank you so very much for hearing me and for loving me even through these airwaves. <laughs> it, it means the world to me. You are so welcome, and you're so right. Green blessings. Thank you. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right, and we have one caller in the queue. That's the best one to have a question. So I will remind everyone else listening, if you have a, call, a question for Susan tonight and would like to join the call live, please do press 1.
Our next caller is coming from the 973 area code. From the 973, you are live with Susan. Hello. Hi. Uh This is Robin. Um, It's nice to talk to you tonight. I have a question about nettles. And I am wondering why some of the nettles that I pick um, has more sting than others. Uh, I'm wondering if it's a different variety, the nettles that grows in wet areas compared to the nettles that grows in more drier areas. Um, I used to order nettles uh, a lot, and I used to order from healing healing herbs, I think they're called, and when I ordered a bag of nettles, I'd stick my hand in and I got a sting of the dried nettles, and it was so nice, I mean a gentle sting, and that doesn't happen with the nettles that I pick. I live in Vermont now, and we have it everywhere, not not near the wetlands, but in up, up further, a little further up on the hill, but I don't get that kind of sting. So I would like to know why. What I say to people is, if your nettle stings after it's dried, then it has been improperly dried. Oh, oh God. Wow. Okay. Because it shouldn't have any sting after it's dried. Ah. Wow. Right? The sting is not mechanical. It's chemical, and it needs water. Okay. So if the nettle's not fully dried, then it can still sting you. Right, when it's alive. Hmm. If you're drying it and you haven't gotten it sufficiently dry, so there's still water in it, then that's when you get stung from the dried nettle. Because it's not really dry yet. Okay. Is there only one variety of nettles in the Northeast? No, but I don't think you're seeing the other variety. The other variety is Leparatia, the woodland nettle, and it grows in deciduous forests and has very big leaves, and it has a much fiercer sting. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed about the nettle is that the amount of stinging that I experience has a lot to do with the quality of my attention as well as the point in its growth cycle that the nettle is in. When it's flowering, I think it stings more. Uh, Okay which is also part of why I say don't pick it when it's flowering. Oh, that's so, I'm glad you even brought that up because it seemed that years ago I was reading pick nettles when flowering um, and recently I'm seeing pick nettles before it flowers. Is, Absolutely. Uh, I don't think anybody ever said to pick it while it's flowering. Oh, okay. I'm mistaken. Um, yeah. So before flowering? Absolutely. Okay. Um, 
And so that's so, I'm, I live in Vermont. Any nettles I come across, um, whether it's uh, in the wetlands or up on the hill where it's drier, it's the same variety and just pick it when it's before it flowers. Yes. That said, <laughs> many plants exhibit individual characteristics even though they're the same plant. Ah, yes. The <laughs> easiest way to understand this is a dachshund dog is Canis Canis. Mm-hmm. A greyhound is Canis Canis. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> the same species and genus, right? Right. But they have a lot of individual differences. Yeah, very different. <laughs> and we find this in the plant world more or less. Cannabis is notorious for this. So are apples. Yeah, apples. Apple, which has five seeds, and you plant those five seeds, you're going to get five different fruits. Right. Right. But it's still apple, isn't it? Yeah, it's still an apple. (laughs) Still an apple. And it's this subtlety that herbalists who are born and live and study and die in one place get into. Mm -hmm. Because they have the plants that grow around them and they have the time to start to notice and to make use of what you're noticing. This patch of nettle is different than this patch of nettle. This person would benefit from the nettle in this patch more than the nettle in that patch. So that we have real individual treatments. Some of my Native American teachers taught me that what you're supposed to do is go to the herb that you want to use for the remedy for a particular person, or have better yet, have that person go to the earth and enter into conversation and relationship with that plant weeks, if not months, before you harvest it so that the plant can make specific constituents for that person. Wow. Wow. That's amazing and beautiful. And yes, I... I did learn from you to sit with a plant. Um, I think maybe I got a little too comfortable with nettles. And um, it always, I always went somewhere away from my house to harvest it. And now it's all around me, and it's not exactly the same. Yeah. 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 One of my past apprentices took some nettle from my nettle patch and took it home and planted it. And she lives, oh, I guess a thousand miles south of me. Maybe not that far. I live in New York and she lives in North Carolina. Pretty far, though. 
and um, six, seven, eight hours drive. And when I visited, I didn't recognize the nail. She said, that's your nail. I said, no, it's not. <laughs> it's half the size. It's a different color. It's a lot stingier. It's her nettle. It's growing in her place. That is so beautiful. <laughs> it really is. That makes me It sense. really, really is. Um, and if you don't mind me asking you another question about comfrey, which I have Please. finally... Uh, is that a yes? Yes. I have finally yes. a beautiful con- comfrey plant growing, and it has... Ooh. Oh, it's so lovely. It's so lovely. It took its time, and now it's just so happy where it is. And it has the creamish, cream yellow color flowers, and I don't know... I know there's pinkish flowers. Uh, when I lived in England, the comfrey leaves I picked then were the pinkish flowers. And are the leaves of both medicinal and should I, because now I'm buying the uh, comfrey leaves, should I pick from my... Here's what I understand. The primary comfries that are grown in the garden are grown from roots because they're hybrids developed by Henry Doubleday Jr. about 80 years ago to reduce the amount of pyrolizidine alkaloids in the comfrey. Wild comfrey, supposedly, has more pyrolizidine alkaloids, whereas cultivated or garden comfrey has little or none. I know the um, United Plant Savers took a sample of garden comfrey leaf from the east, from the Rocky Mountain states and from the west, and had them analyzed for pyrolizidine alkaloids, and two out of three had none, and one part, one had, I think, one part per trillion. So basically, none. That said, David Hoffman says nobody's ever shown that pyrolizidine alkaloids in comfrey can be used by the body in any way, either beneficial or detrimental. So what I believe is that the tall comfrey, whatever color the flowers are, if it's taller than your shoulders, that it's cultivated comfrey, and if it's down by your knees or lower, kind of like borage, it's probably the wild comfrey. I like to harvest comfrey flowering stalk because it's loaded with allantoin, which is such a tremendous healer. So I wait until the comfrey comes up into flower, cut the whole flowering stalk off near the ground level, and hang it individually up to dry. And that's the taller one, the garden? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Regardless of the color of the flowers. Regardless of the color of the flowers. Okay. Here's the flowers so, that change color. Do they? <laughs> do they? So I do not think that flower color, you know, it's like saying black cats do this. Well, not necessarily. Right? 
because you could have a black, different, you know, several cats that were black, but they were, they're very different kinds of cats, right? Right. <laughs> I, I love that. And we're, talking, and we're talking again about a plant that can be somewhat individual. However, the way that I know that it's hybrid comfrey, and it was hybridized to reduce and eliminate the pyrolyzin and alkaloids, the way that I know it's hybrid comfrey is that it has flowers and the bees come to the flowers, but it does not make seeds that grow in the garden. Have you ever grown borage? Um, I have seen it growing. But borage is comfrey's sister. Like a reason the borage and ACAE family. And what happens when you grow one plant of borage in your garden? The next year you have a million plants of borage, right? Huh. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens with your comfrey? Um, it hasn't. Um, I just, I planted it, I think it's been there for a year, and it's a probably... Um, Maybe, maybe a chest height now. I planted it probably a year and a half ago, and it did nothing for about eight months. Got it. Uh, just sat there and soaked. Yeah, it that, it was just settling. It probably even longer. It's almost a year. It did nothing. It settled, and then all of a sudden now it's sending up flower stalks. Yes. Fabulous. Yes. So Fabulous. I would call that the taller garden comfrey. I think it's definitely the taller garden one, and you'll see that it's mm-hmm. not springing up everywhere after it has flowers, like borage. Yeah, it's not. Because mm-hmm. hybrids have sterile seeds. Uh-huh. And thank goodness. I mean, yeah. I've been seeing at herbal conferences over the past little bit that people are selling comfrey seeds and I'm thinking only somebody who wants to abandon their garden would grow (laughs) comfrey from seed because that means you'll grow a comfrey that will have seed viable seed and that's it your garden's gone yeah because you can't dig it out yeah it'll take over with all the seeds totally you know if it's setting seed on the other hand, I moved here in 1978. In the spring of 1979, I planted 12 comfrey roots. That's a lot of years ago. Mm-hmm. I have 12 comfrey plants. Well, not really. I have 13 comfrey plants because I let somebody have a piece of comfrey root. I let her go to the garden and dig it up, and she dropped a little bit on the way out of her garden, so now I have a 13th plant. <laughs> Um, that comfrey has not gone anywhere. It's exactly where I planted it, and there's not little baby comfreys all over the garden. Yes, comfrey makes babies around its root. If you dig it up, you'll see that there's like a mother root and then lots of little baby comfrey roots around her. Okay. But she's not going to leap around and take over your garden. Now, if you hoe her, you're going to spread her like crazy because she's not only is spread by the hoeing, but she sticks to your hoe, and now wherever you put your hoe next, you're going to get comfrey too. Oh. Okay. I had passed apprentice. 
bought a farm and they had a long driveway and a, just a little, you know, verge on the driveway before the farmer's hayfield. And they planted comfrey all along their driveway because they thought that was like a good way to, to define the boundary. And a farmer plowed a little close one year and he now has 40 acres of comfrey. <laughs> For, of the low comfrey also? No, no, high. It's a high comfrey. They planted it there, so it's the garden comfrey. Oh, interesting. So, oh, yeah, they no, they planted comfrey as a kind of, you know, fence between them and the and the hayfield, and he just, you know, swung oh. that plow. Just all it takes was knocking into one comfrey plant. It's not like you plowed down their comfrey. Wow. They didn't even know he had done it until they saw his hayfield turn into a comfrey field. <laughs> Fortunately, it's, you know, dried leaves minus root are good feed for animals and good in your compost pile, too. But don't get the root in your compost pile. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I was thinking with the comfrey, I will just have to continue studying it longer and Mm -hmm. uh, find out. If you're buying it, good. I buy most of my comfrey. I buy most of my herbs. Even if I had 10 apprentices and we all worked all day long every day, I couldn't harvest the amount of herb that I use. Yeah, yeah. Even right. if I you just use... had workshops. I just had yeah. workshops this weekend. We made, what, six, seven, eight gallons of infusion. Wow. Right. I'm so yeah, just... glad that we yeah. have herbal suppliers. I am so glad that there is a worldwide distribution of good quality organic herbs. Wow. That really makes me smile. Yeah, me too. I mean, my nettles alone is, it's, you know, when it's ready. And also, you only pick, um, or is it best just to pick the top of the nettles? When I'm harvesting it for infusion, I pick the entire stalk of the nettle. Okay, I do that as well. And I use the leaves and the stalk. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, good. After all, all the nourishment got to the leaves through the stalk, right? Right, right. Okay, wonderful. Um, I'm so excited about my comfrey. I was kind of just putting it on, putting it on hold, and just going and sitting with it and watching it, and you know, I thought maybe in a few more years we will have this great communication, and I will know exactly what to do. So I've, with this phone call, has sped that time up and a little say, bit. I would also urge you, when it flowers, <clears throat> to harvest at least one flowering stalk and hang it up and dry it. Okay. And let that be part of your conversation, because most of us feel better when we're used, yeah. when we are useful, when we have a function. And I very much get from the plants that they really enjoy being used. Yeah, my my nettles tells me that all the time. It just it seems like when I walk into the patch, it's screaming, "No, pick me! No, pick me! No, pick me!" Right, come over here and pick 
me. Come yeah. on. Right. <laughs> And then I think, okay, well, just wait, wait your turn, you're next, you know. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. That's great. Okay, so just keep listening. Wonderful, wonderful questions. Thanks so much for calling. Yes, thanks, Susan. Dream blessings. Bye. Bye. All right, in our quick moment, we do not have any listeners that have signaled that they have a question. Um, would you like to take a moment and acknowledge the harmony in that, or where would you like to go to email? Let's go to email. All right, excellent. Actually, can I ask you one question first, kind of in the sure. lines of cement? Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Okay, um, so kava, kava, root, punch. I've heard you discuss that before, mm-hmm. and Okay, so, so let's just stop. Let's just stop right here because first of all, there's some confusion about the name. Okay. Mm. So we're talking about Piper Mysticum, yes? Yes. All right. That is Kava. Okay. Got it. Got I have it. called it Kava Kava. It is sold as Kava Kava. It's not Kava Kava. Kava Kava is another plant. Pretty much what's being sold as kava kava is kava. But there's some confusion, and hopefully at some point we can get this straightened out, because the second kava on it is the indicator that it isn't the real kava. So kava root, pipermethysticum, is the plant that we think of as being used throughout the Pacific Islands. And you've been using it. Got it. Okay. What a lovely botanical name. I love that name. Hypermethysticum, I should call it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love kava. I... I keep a brew of Kavarut. I keep a quart of Kavarut infusion in the refrigerator. And I remember most mornings to have a splash of it in my morning infusion because I find that it definitely aids and abets my other pain-relieving remedies. Mm. Kava infusion by itself is pretty good for relieving musculoskeletal pain. How have you been using it? I have actually never prepared or tried it, so I'm curious and wanted to speak with you first about it and um, uh-huh. any of your wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We um, enjoy it every year, at not every year, every other year at the Herbalist Ball at the International Herb Symposium. I think the International Herb Symposium is um, going to be virtual 
this year, so I guess there won't be an herbalist ball or any kava kava, and I want to thank Herbal Ed, who every year has provided kava kava for the herbalist ball, and what we know is a little different than what you're going to find out in the books, which is going to tell you that kava, or they might even call it kava kava, is a sedative. And what you want to do is you want to drink enough that your nose tingles and your lips tingle. And then you decide what you want to do. You want to dance all night? Kava is very happy to help you dance all night. You want to lay down and sleep really deeply and wake up refreshed? Refreshed? Kava is very happy to help you do that. Hmm. And do they prepare it like an infusion, or do they? Is there something else that makes? Ah, oh, yeah. I I'm, I have not ever been part of the um, preparatory oh. people, so I can't tell you exactly what they do. But I believe uh, that Herbal Ed has uh, powdered kava root, and that that is. Steeped or boiled <clears throat> somehow, and then a kava tincture is added to that. Is my belief? I don't really know, mm. but okay. that's what it tastes like to me when I'm drinking it. Yes, we get little, you know, little Dixie cups of it. Mm-hmm. Right, servers go throughout. The dancing herbalists offering up little Dixie cups of kava. <laughs> wow, and that's enough to get the nose. <clears throat> the first time I had kava, the first time I had kava, I was pretty sure that it had not affected me in any way whatsoever. I was on a houseboat, and it was supposedly a traditional kava ceremony. And what was traditional about it? Uh, was that a bowl of the prepared kava was passed with a special carved scooper, and you scooped out three scooperfuls of kava and consumed them and passed it on to the next person. The bowl went around and around and around, and if you want to sing a little song or say a little prayer, you could do that, but it was optional. It's not like the peyote ceremony where I was told you have to do that. And it was fun, and it was, you know, nice, and I enjoyed myself, and they were nice people, and the kava didn't taste too bad. And then we got up to leave the houseboat, and we had to walk on this plank to get to shore. And (laughs) I realized that the kava had definitely altered my reality, and that I wasn't so sure I was going to be able to make it across that plank. It was pretty oh, wow. funny. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's not, strictly speaking, mind-altering, you know, but it does change reality <laughs> a little bit for you. The, what does Kava do? Let's put ourselves in the places where the people who have Kava, and I believe that there's no wild Kava left. 
I believe that Cause is a plant that has been cultivated so much that the wild one is just gone, and it's just cultivars, and there's lots of different cultivars of kava, which is why the kava-kava is the one that isn't kava. And that's kind of one of the themes of tonight is all the different cultivars or breeds that we can have of the same plant. So let's suppose that you live on an island with what? Two, three hundred people? Can you afford to keep a grudge? No. Can you right? Can you go to sleep mad? No, you cannot do that. I am sorry. Your group needs each other so Every evening you sit down by kava ceremony and you drink kava, which, wow, makes you love your neighbor. Oh, nice. Really, the primary thing that it does, it just makes you look out onto the foibles of yourself and others with a softer view. Nice. Nice. So nice. Yeah, that sounds like uh, another interesting thing, too. Ah, thank you. Now, now, what I had originally read, I'm not sure it's totally true, somewhat true, is that um, the kava was traditionally prepared by a woman chewing the root and spitting it into a vessel, probably a large group of women chewing the root and spitting it into a vessel in the morning and letting it ferment in the hot sun all day long. Apparently, nowadays... And even back then, they had big pounders, big like hollowed out logs that were stood on end, and big pounders that went in there, and the kava root was put in there with some water and pounded and pounded and pounded and left to ferment in the sun. So however they got it wet or however they got it pounded up, whether it was with their teeth or a pounder, it fermented. And so I've always Mm. thought, ah, better to let my kava infusion sit out on the counter for a few days and get some lactobacillus in there so we get a little ferment going, and then I can refrigerate it. And as I said, I keep a quart in the refrigerator, and I will actually rebrew it when I'm pretty much done with it. I'll pour more boiling water into it. It's a root. I get a lot out of it. And each time I rebrew it, I use correspondingly more so that the first infusion, which I've allowed to ferment ever so slightly, I'm just using maybe a quarter of a cup. And by the time I've done it three times, I'm using a cupful. Okay. But it, play around with it. Enjoy it. It's a wonderful plant. Thank you. I am excited. Thank you for the wisdom and the encouragement to try it. I am looking forward to this. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Thanks for your question. And we do have a caller that has signaled a question, and you are calling from the 985 area code. From the 985, you are live with Susan. Hey, Susan. This is Katie Williams' daughter. Hey, Katie. How are you? I'm doing really well. I... um. I've been thinking so much about you because last year at this time I was um, apprenticing with you and sitting on the floor while you did blog talks. That's right. And I got to meet Sarah Ellen last year too. So Sarah Ellen, I have really enjoyed listening to you these last few months. Ah, oh, thank you, Katie. It's nice to hear your voice. 
Yeah. Um, how is everything, Susan? Things are going really fantastically well. Both Rishkagal and Ishel had babies. And so there's baby goats here, and we're making a cheese every other day because we have so much milk. Wow, so are y'all still milking Isis? Yes, we're still milking Isis. Okay, so three three milking goats. Three milking goats pumping out milk. Wow. That's and amazing. Michelle, the... And Michelle, the apprentice, has become a superb cheesemaker. Oh, that's amazing. Yay. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to your um, tree talk. One of It's one of your recordings I got from uh, the Wise Woman Bookshop. And I was thinking so, I've been thinking so much about it because you talk about people's fear of the forest. And I'm living right now in such a forested area, and I find myself um, longing for wide open spaces sometimes. And I really enjoyed listening to that tree talk um, because I find that, like, wow, there is something about me that misses wide open spaces, like seeing far. And, you know, also, like, I've been thinking about telling you this, too. In Tennessee, we've had... So I just moved to Tennessee a couple of months ago, and we have so many ticks. And it's um, it's really wild, like, how much it affects my life. And now in the summer we've got chiggers as well. But I remember, like, a long time ago before I apprenticed you, I was looking at your apprentice page, and it talked about ticks. And, like, that's one of the excuses I had made, like, oh, I can't apprentice with Susan because there's, like, ticks and you know, Lyme is so scary, and I don't, I can't go there. But and but the whole time I was your house, I was at your house. I probably, I had like two ticks on me, and they weren't even buried into my skin. And here in Tennessee, it's been just like, yeah, it's been super wild how these tiny little creatures have affected my life so much. And I've tried, um, I've been using yarrow tincture as a spray, um, but that does not. It hasn't seemed to um, be effective for these Tennessee Tennessee creatures. And so you're talking about ticks or are you talking about chiggers? I'm talking about both. Well, in the spring we had uh, ticks worse than – so we had big ticks. Because, and I, don't, ticks, but because now, I have not – I haven't found anything that will repel chiggers. You just have to not go where they are, which is grassy areas. And if you get chiggers, then you paint them with fingernail polish, and they are soon dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. And for ticks, do you recommend – the yarrow spray seemed to work well for me when I was up in New York, but um, has been – not quite as effective in Tennessee. Do you recommend anything else? Or maybe... I I would say apply it more frequently. Okay. I suspect that you are there than you were here and that you may be sweating it off your body more quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's water-based. 
So, it, you know, it can sweat off your body pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, there's okay. alcohol in it, but, but it's alcohol and water. So that's what I would do. And are you still, like you mentioned that when you were here, and it's interesting because Michelle the Apprentice who's here now and I were just talking about this. Um, in fact, in class on Sunday about how um, it's so rare for either of us to actually find a tick that's attached because we either feel them crawling on us or as soon as they bite us, we feel it. And I think you said that you felt or experienced something similar when you were here. Is that different where you are now? No, I think that I also, I've only, well, I did have a couple of seed ticks attached, but I found them very quickly. But, you know, I have two dogs now, and coexisting with my dogs has made, like, the Right, dog dicks. Right, has, like, they brought a lot more into my environment. But, you know, one of the first, so last year at Green Goddess Week, you told us to imagine, like, the most loving energy that we could imagine that would, like, cloak us and and protect us and I did that and I I really think it worked I mean I really yeah that's really helpful and I do that here now as well I just the quantity of ticks has just been really surprising but but you know it's also the woods are so beautiful so I I know it's the same way in Costa Rica you know the the Justine got dogs and we were taking hundreds of ticks off the puppies every day Hundreds, hmm. not just a few. And yeah, it's, that's, you know, how, it's, that's how I will. Yeah, it's just daunting to try to keep up with it. And that's why one of the elder herbalists um, said to us, don't eat or drink anything in Costa Rica because we poison everything here to try to deal with the ticks. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's rough for everybody. Nobody, nobody, especially not people who live in those situations, have real good answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super, it's been interesting to navigate. And I did, I ended up, because I was so desperate, I gave next guard to both of my dogs, but both an internal pill and both of them, like an oral pill. And both of them started having health problems after that. So, but which is, you know, because it's deep medicine. If something can stay in your system that that long, and and it definitely worked for ticks, but it brought about some other issues. So, so anyway, it's mm. just something to navigate. It is. It is. And yeah, you know, not not everybody has the time to do what we were doing in Costa Rica, which is to sit there every day and bathe the dogs every day and take the ticks off of them every day. It was very labor intensive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to just uh, turn a podcast on and uh, take those ticks off. There you go. <laughs> a tick, tick a day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I, I'm really glad I got to talk to you and hi to Michelle the Apprentice. I hope that she's um, having a great time. And uh, I, 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 maybe, maybe she is eating chocolate <laughs> every once in a while. Like, <laughs> Put out the first time you put out chocolate, I came in and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing!" <laughs> like so, I hope that like, yeah, hope she gets to eat some chocolate. <laughs> have you gotten to eat any chocolate? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> that was the other thing that she was noticing was that while she really enjoys the chocolate that she's had to eat, that she didn't feel the need to. Eat and eat and eat and eat. That right. she had some chocolate and she was satisfied with the chocolate she had. Yes, I thought the same way. Like, it was more. Yeah. Just the surprise and novelty of it. <laughs> I like that. Yes, I do too. Um, well, I. Yeah, I wish you all a, a wonderful night of uh, milking and restful sleep. Thank you, Katie. Lots of love. Thanks. Bye, Susan. Bye-bye. All right. Love to you, Katie. Uh, looks like at this moment no one has raised their hand with a question. Um, I also do not yet see our guest in the queue. Um and we do have an email question, and with that, I'll leave it up to you. Where I guess you like we should go to that email question. All right, we will go there. Let's see. Hello, Susan. I am a man in my 50s, and for as long as I can remember, my feet stink. I would like to spend more time barefoot, but even alone, the stink of my feet is bothersome, and certainly when I'm with others, I'm too aware of the smell to be barefoot. Do you have any suggestions for what I can do to lessen the foot smell that is always with me? Many thanks to you. Yes. What I have been told is that usually feet smell because the person is wearing socks made of synthetic materials and shoes made of synthetic materials. So try getting socks made only of non-synthetic materials. That would be cotton socks or silk socks or wool socks, but not uh, any of the other materials. And you'll see right away that's a little bit hard to find socks and you'll begin to realize that actually you've been walking around with your feet in plastic bags because, yeah, those other materials are plastic. And once you get your sock situation to something not like a plastic bag, then it's time to see what you can do about getting some shoes that are as close to being non-plastic as possible. It's pretty hard to find shoes without some kind of plastic or rubber-like plastic in the soles of the shoes. But you could get shoes like 
canvas sneakers. Not fancy running shoes, which are mostly plastic, but real canvas, what we used to call tennis shoes. Or perhaps uh, you want to get leather shoes. That's fine, too. But again, what you want is to move more toward getting your feet out of the plastic bags, which you have inserted into plastic boxes. And of course, nothing could smell good in those situations. Meanwhile, it might be possible that having your feet in plastic bags, which are the synthetic socks and plastic boxes, which is the non-natural material shoes, that some fungal infection has gotten into your feet and is causing a terrible smell. That can also happen. And so you're getting rid of your socks and your shoes, so that's fine. You won't reinfect yourself. And you can soak your feet in a little bit of warm water. You can add a little salt to that warm water. helps kill funguses. There's also an herb called horsetail, Equisetum arvins, which is also known as a fungicide. So you could brew up a quart of horsetail infusion using one ounce of dried horsetail in a quart jar, filling it to the top of boiling water, putting a lid on it, letting it steep overnight. And then your choice. You can dump it in a pan, stick your feet in it, room temperature. You can heat it up and put your feet in it. You can strain the herb out and put your feet in it, hot or cold. And you don't have to use the whole quart at once if you don't want to, just enough to cover your feet. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to come up to your ankles. And if it doesn't work for you to soak your feet, you could also take some of those cotton socks that you bought and soak them in the horsetail and then put those on your feet. And then you're going to have to put your feet in like a pan or, a, you know, something to keep them from getting wet all over. But you can do that like while you're sitting still eating dinner or while you're sitting still talking to friends or playing cards or whatever it is that you do that you're sitting still. And give yourself a little antifungal horsetail treatment by soaking those cotton socks in the horsetail. And now we're looking to see if Danielle Ryan Bruida is with us. Yeah, she has joined the line. She is in the queue. Danielle Ryan Bruida is a pivotal voice in the nutrition and functional mushroom and adaptogen space. As a registered herbalist of the American Herbalist Guild, a certified holistic nutritionist, an instructor of mycology, and a national educator of four sigmatic, Danielle is teaching the world about the importance of functional foods and herbal medicine for a vital life. Prior to joining forces with the four, with four sigmatic, she received her Bachelor's of Arts in Environmental Studies and Philosophy from Whitman College and then went on to study Ayurveda in India and become a certified yoga instructor on the banks of the Ganges River, oh, Mama Ganga. But it was leading trekking adventures into the back country of Thailand where she became particularly fascinated by herbal medicine while also becoming fluent in Thai. 
after several years in Asia, and Danielle landed in Boulder, Colorado, where she formalized her education in holistic medicine upon completing her graduate studies at the Colorado School of Clinical Herbalism. She opened a private practice where she's worked with hundreds of clients specializing in functional mushroom-based treatment for individuals with autoimmune conditions. Danielle was invited to become the instructor of mycology at the Colorado School of Clinical Herbalism, and she still teaches there. Danielle brings her passion and her expertise in herbal medicine, clinical practice, teaching, formulation, and deep love for fungi to everything she does. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be with you tonight. Can you tell me what Four Sigmatic is? Yes, absolutely. So it's a really fun name when you understand what it means. We kind of made it up. It's not a real word. But essentially we focus on the 100 most researched and nutrient-dense foods on the planet. And so if you take all the foods in the world and you put them on a graph based on the amount of phytonutrients in them, we have some foods that are horrible for us on one end of the spectrum, other foods that are amazing for us on the opposite end of the spectrum, and the rest of average foods falling somewhere in between. So when we picture this plotted out, there's a bell curve that forms. And if you draw a mean in the center of the bell curve, every measurement from that mean is a standard deviation or a sigma. So we focus on foods that are four sigmas or standard deviations from average food. So there's a lot of adaptogens, functional mushrooms, some of our more common foods like you know, coffees in that category and uh, Camellia sinensis, right, our teas. And so we are a, a functional food company that makes products using these 104 Sigma foods. And that's what Sigmatics is. <laughs> All right. Well, we spent the weekend talking about adaptogens. And I introduced that by saying that the term adaptogen was coined in Russia and the way they defined it was a plant that um, basically could be in just about any quantity without causing harm, a plant that didn't uh, push the body to do one thing or another but tended to normalize the body, and a plant that um, actively helped the body to counter the damage caused by stress and to reduce stress. And that's a pretty broad definition. So things like stinging that little hawthorn, and one of my favorites, self-heal, would fall into that definition. Now, David Winston has tightened up the definition and talks about the HPA axis. So tell us more about your take on adaptogens. Yeah, that's so wonderful that you bring up self-heal because I'm drinking Prunella as we're speaking, which is really funny. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, the Russian, you know, they had this entire mission where they sent out a group of scientists and researchers, and they said, we want you to go scan the globe and find the herbs or the mushrooms, the substances out there that are going to make our 
Olympic athletes, the strongest, and we'll have the smartest chess players, and basically wanted to create the best of the best in all these categories. And, of course, these um, the term adaptogen was coined based on this group of herbs and fungi that were brought back, but, of course, the adaptogens were used for hundreds, some of them thousands of years before that term was was coined. And then, as you said, David Winston did a wonderful job of kind of tightening up that definition. Um, and I'm in the process now of writing a book on adaptogens as well, which will be out next fall. And we're kind of getting more and more specific of what do adaptogens, what do they really mean? How can we use them safely? And what can they do for our bodies? And a simple way, you kind of hit on those big things, this non-toxic, non-habit forming, normalizing effect on the body. The way that I hope we can start thinking about adaptogens is having a gas break effect, or another way to think of it is like a cruise control effect. So in my book, I'm actually arguing that cacao is an adaptogen. And I think this is a, a good example because so many of us are familiar with cacao. And we recognize that you know, it has this theobromine, which can be a bit more stimulating, right, that gas, but it also has sufficient amounts of magnesium, that break. And so the ability to have both and, and many, many other compounds, but at least two compounds that are working potentially in opposition so that when the body, the person that interacts with that adaptogen takes it, depending on what that person needs, the adaptogen will have a different effect in every body. So even if, Susan, you know, we drank from the same pot of cacao, um, if my body was really exhausted, I might have a different experience with that cacao, and it might bring me what my body is, is needing versus, you know, depending on how you show up to meet that medicine. Yes, absolutely. So you, like I, recognize what David is doing with the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, but still are willing to uh, be more open um, about adaptogens, more like the original definition. I mean, I think I'm surprised at how narrow... Um, they, the group of plants that David allows in as adaptogens, a lot of plants that we might consider adaptogens, he's like possible or probable. So um, I think that one of the things that we all agree upon is that all mushrooms are adaptogens. How did you get involved oh. with fungi? What do you have to say about mushrooms and adaptogens? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so all functional mushrooms, I'll clarify, are adaptogens in my opinion. So when we talk about fungi, it's a really exciting time. There's a big campaign happening where we can expand our conversation to not only flora and fauna, but the three Fs, flora, fauna, and fungi. So first and foremost, we'll honor that fungi are their own biological kingdom. And within that, there are subspecies that fruit mushrooms. And within the species that fruit mushrooms, there's about six or 700 species that have been particularly well studied for their functional benefits, right? The, the benefits they have to the human body. Um, and so functional mushrooms, I'll just clarify, uh, 
are indeed adaptogens for many reasons. We can get we can get into this, but how I my journey with with mushrooms it's probably similar to many of our journeys with plants. Is I really feel them they found me. I really do find the mushrooms. Um, it's almost like if you're really gung ho on finding a morel or you're going out to find oysters or whatever it might be in the forest, the harder you look, the more they hide their, themselves from you. This is how I feel my journey with the mushrooms was. It was, it was um, so many different aspects. In, um, in my young 20s, I studied a lot of soil health and was really passionate about industrial composting and humanure and just the building of the soil before we could even um, talk about our plants or our fungi. And I first was introduced to mycorrhizal fungi. So myco, you know, the, the Latin fungi, and then rhizo root. So that for those that this term is famil- unfamiliar, these are specific species of fungi that have a symbiotic, often, relationship with, um, with a plant. So they started showing up in that way. And um, I moved to Asia to work for uh, a company. I was leading students on these backpacking trips, living with hill tribe villages. And mushrooms are a big part of Asian culture. You know, in the West, it's, I think we're kind of entering this shroom boom. But in Asia, it's really well integrated into daily life. And so the mushrooms kept coming up in food and medicine. Um, and there's many pieces where they kind of kept showing their head. And uh, when I finally opened my private practice after herb school, the individuals that were coming to me basically said, and this is not uncommon in the world of um, many of my herbal colleagues, they said, I've tried every practitioner, and Danielle, you're my last resort. Um, and they either were ha- experiencing different sorts of chronic illness or autoimmune conditions or, frankly, symptoms that any Western model didn't have a name for. So they said, you don't have a problem. Nothing's wrong with you. And after working with many of the plants, in specifically working with immune function, I started focusing in on functional mushrooms for these incredible 1316 beta deglucans, these polysaccharides that are immune modulating. And I saw the most profound benefits in so many different clients with a range of autoimmune conditions. And I just started falling in love with the magic of these functional mushrooms. And I was shocked by how small of a space that they occupied in the conversation around herbal medicine, especially in Western herbal medicine. And so anyways, from there on out, I've I've pretty much dedicated my life to working with these fungi species. At the moment, there are two main um, kinds of mushroom product available to people. Real mushrooms, which grows mushrooms in China, and powders or tinctures those mushrooms, and thus calls themselves real mushrooms, and Paul Stamets and his business, which sells 
the mycelial part of the mushroom rather than the fruiting body. He has a lot of solid scientific uh, backup to what he's doing with mycelium and says basically it is the plant. You don't need to go all the way out to the fruiting body. It's more like using the Echinacea root than using the Echinacea seeds, which makes a lot of sense to me. Have you experimented with both of those things? And what do you have to say about that? This is such a hot topic, so thanks for bringing it up. And my approach falls on looking at ancient traditions. So really looking at how have these species been used for hundreds, some of them thousands of years. So if we look at traditional Chinese medicine or Russian or Korean folk medicine, even Native American folk medicine, we're using some of these species of mushrooms. And the part of the mushrooms that our ancestors have always used is the fruiting body. So basically, this is the part of the mushroom that's um, above ground when it comes to our functional varieties. The majority of them grow on different trees, so that are coming off the side of trees. And mycelium is not able to be harvested in nature on its own. So if you try to go harvest mycelium in nature, it'll be completely integrated and intertwined with um, often thousands of other microorganisms. And so when we look at the ancient texts and we look at the tradition, it, it's really, really deeply steeped in the fruiting body. And the mycelium research I'm hopeful about, um, the use of mycelium is about 30 years old. And in order, I grow mushrooms as well. And so in order to uh, cultivate mycelium without having contamination, it has to be grown in a sterile environment in a laboratory setting. And I think part of the uh, benefit and the magic of mycelium out in nature, it's comprised of these little thread-like hairs. They're called hyphae, and they're one cell wall thick. And so you can imagine in nature competing in the environment, they are constantly uh, activating their immune forces, right? They're like, okay, is this, is this me? Is this not me? They're constantly faced with different antigens in this one cell wall thick. So the immune, um, you know, potential of them is really strong. However, when we look at mycelium grown in a lab setting, uh, there's no invaders, right? To the point that even if there's one uh, potential antigen, the whole batch is considered contaminated and is thrown out. So I personally feel really, really strongly about using the real mushrooms in the way that they've been used for several thousand years. And then furthermore, really, if we can, depending on the species, either wild harvesting um, sustainably certain mushroom species or ensuring that they're grown on this, the mediums that they're found on out in nature. And what we see with a lot of the mycelium products is that they're grown on different grains, different substrate that the mushroom, that's foreign to the mushrooms. So I almost think of this like feeding a cow, um, you know, different soy products or corn products that it, it has no evolution of recognizing versus feeding the mushrooms, um, the wood substrates, the, the ground up sawdust and the compounds from the trees that they are naturally found on in nature. Theoretically, I'm entirely with you. Mm -hmm. And 
my take on it has always been to live where there's a forest and I can go harvest mushrooms. I have always felt that part of really being abundantly well is to include wild mushrooms in my diet to the point where if I am lucky enough to find a big enough patch, I will put them in the freezer so that I can eat mushrooms during the wintertime as well. My woods is now completely devoid of most functional mushrooms because people have come and stolen them all. Wow. All the turkey tails are gone. All the chaga is gone. So I have a hard time advising people to choose wild mushrooms because those wild mushrooms are not being harvested ethically so far as I can see. I really like the idea of real mushrooms, but where are they growing them? They're growing them in China. So when we think about, I'm theoretically too, when we think about China, I'm typically against getting as herbal medicine from China. And yet when it comes to fungi, they often and in, and in case listeners, in case you don't know why we are like, Ugh, it's because the levels of pollutants in the soil, the water, and the air in China are staggering. And it's not like, yeah. I mean, real mushrooms says, oh, they're organically grown. I'm like, you can't grow anything really organically in China. You're, the air, the, the water, it's like everywhere. Yeah, so when it comes to the functional mushrooms, what I think about is they occupy this unique space because of any culture around the world of traditional medicine, fungi are most native and they have the longest history of use and most abundant use still today in traditional Chinese medicine. Okay, where are the several decade-long uh, growers of these functional varieties it is in China. Um, so over 80% of the world's mushroom supply still comes from there. And there aren't, there's some new functional mushroom farms sprouting up in the West, which I'm very excited about. My friend Alex Dorr has the largest cordyceps farm in the States, and there's others coming. But when we look at where are the traditional places in which these mushrooms have decades and decades of history of growing, it's still in China where these mushrooms are most used and revered. And so, and I just want to point out the difference when you're using functional mushrooms growing on ideally a wood substrate, it's grown completely above the soil, right? So these species are grown in, um, uh, in bags, typically that's full of different sawdust substrate that mimics the woods that these mushrooms are found on wild. So you can farm, so I think, yeah, just um, in wild harvesting mushrooms in China versus growing in a farmed setting uh, where the, the mushrooms themselves or the substrates never actually touch the soil or the groundwater. And yet that said, you bring up a really good point about pollutants and making sure that our mushrooms are clean. And of course, this is important with all of our, our medicine, but almost tenfold when it comes to mushrooms, because they're bioaccumulators. And this is where Paul is doing some really wonderful work with 
mycoremediation, the potential of mushrooms and my mushroom mycelium particularly to absorb all sorts of different toxins from the medium that they're growing from. And so that can be really wonderful ecologically, and yet when it comes to our bodies, we need to ensure that our mushrooms are not only organic, that should really be like the first, very first line of defense, but that they've been third-party laboratory tested for all of the potential concerns, things like heavy metals, mold, yeast, mycotoxins, irradiation. And so I want us to be careful because I'm seeing, you know, mushrooms grown from the U.S. that aren't held to the same standards of mushrooms coming from Asia and mushrooms from the U.S. actually being dirtier and containing more toxins than mushrooms from the East. So, like, wherever <laughs> we're getting from them. Life is so complicated. <laughs> I know. I know. It, I, <laughs> the, but, so I think if, if we can get, you know, these, these legitimate laboratory tests to show that our mushrooms are clean, that should be the standard we withhold, you know, that we really stand by instead of saying, oh, they come from this Asian farm or this U.S. farm or this Siberian farm, like, okay, are they organic? Let's look at the data of the cleanliness of these mushrooms before we consume them. Right. The mushrooms that are most frequently grown, to my knowledge, in the United States are Pleurotus and Shiitake. Yes. And I, I know that there's even people around me growing shiitake because I get the spent shiitake logs here. It's not, you know, fruiting enough for us. You can have it. And we'll, get, we'll still get shiitake from it for 10 years. Not very many, but a few here and there. Yes, that's amazing. And, and that's, of course, logs that are plugged. They're not grown in plastic bags, but they're actually grown on... You know, it's a mycelial plug put into a drilled hole in a log that that mushroom would grow in. Yes. So you might look around to see if there's anyone around you who's growing mushrooms because as we've laid, as Danielle and I have laid out here, it's pretty easy for us to say, hey, take mushrooms. You know, medicinal mushrooms are really great, but... Then when you go out to buy them, and you probably will, because I'm not encouraging you to go harvest them yourself, um, you're going to start to meet up with some of these problems. So I think the middle way here is find your local producers of mushrooms and see, because I don't, you know, hey, it's great that they're growing on wood chips, but in a plastic bag, I'm unhappy with plastic bags. But I'm yeah, a plastic eater, we all. <laughs> Me too, Susan. <laughs> you know, I'm having Big such time. a great time talking to you, Danielle, that I do not want to uh, neglect. I'm asking you to tell people where they can get in touch with you. Yes, I would love to stay in touch. I actually, if people want to learn more about this topic, I made a little free online mushroom academy. They're little short videos. So you can you can watch those, and I'll give the link as well. But my website is Danielle Ryan Wellness, and you can find the Mushroom Academy at foursigmatic.com. And on all social channels, my name is at 
Danielle Ryan Broida, or you can also find me on at Four Sigmatic. All right, that works pretty well. I'm guessing that Prunella Vulgaris is uh, four standard deviations. Prunella is indeed a four sigma food. I'm so in love with this plant. And she's so underrated. She is so totally underrated. That's why I'm, I made a quart of prunella infusion for the adaptogens class. And I said, listen up here. This plant grows in everybody's lawn and nobody is using it. It's so true. I also wish I could have um, popped in so many times. I was listening earlier and I wanted to pop in about kava because I spent time in Fiji doing the kava oh, preparation oh, with the locals. Yes. <laughs> yes, add to the kava conversation, please, Danielle. <laughs> I was like, oh, I wish I was on 10 minutes earlier. So you had it totally, uh, you know, almost exactly right. Um, you sit around in a circle, and this might be how the locals do it today, maybe not completely traditional, but they used a pillowcase. So they used a pillowcase, and they stuffed it with um, the kava powder, the root powder, and they milked it. So they had a big bowl, and there's one leader of the kava ceremony, um, and he's milking it for several hours. So you mentioned, you know, they used to um, kind of grind it down with a log. He was really just milking it with his hands for several hours before inviting the community to come sit in circle. And then there's these little tiny wooden bowls, like you said, enough for one sip of kava at a time. And you go around and the, the leader of the ceremony actually drinks that a sip of kava every time someone around the circle drinks it. So he pours one for himself and he pours one for um, the person next in line in the circle. And you cheers and you say, Bula! And you shoot it down, and then you pass it on. And you do that for hours and hours and hours up until, you know, the wee hours in the night. And I was just giggling when you said you got up and were like, whoa, because the same thing happened to me. I'm like, this is great. I feel so relaxed, and I'm in this circle. And as soon as I stood up, I was like, I'm altered. (laughs) Whoa! And especially to be faced with a plank that you have to walk across to get to shore. It's like, uh oh. <laughs> oh, so funny. Uh, <laughs> oh. So we have we have laughed and talked and enjoyed almost our entire half hour. I could just go on and on and on. What a great delight to spend this time with you. But we have come to the time when I ask you, what would you like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everybody who's listening to you tonight? Mm. I wish I could talk to you for another hour, but we'll leave with what I feel is one of the most potent um, teachings from the mushrooms, and that is interconnectivity and when we look at fungi they are true connectors of all plants underneath the forest floor and the connections they're the grand decomposers of the world so they connect life and death and for me and for so many people that I work with with the mushrooms they teach us how to connect with our own bodies 
with the planet, with each other. And I feel that that medicine of connection is needed so, so much, maybe more than ever in the worlds that we're living through. So bring, bring some mushroom medicine into your kitchens, wherever you are. And um, I hope that power of connection begins to, to seep into you as well. Oh, thank you so much for that, Danielle Ryan Broida. The power of connection through the mushrooms, which are the great connectors. Mushrooms were my first love. And I pulled back. I didn't want to teach about mushrooms because I don't want somebody's death on my karma sheet. (laughs) It just seemed a lot safer to work with the plants and people. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so glad to see mushrooms really coming into their own here because I truly um, am a a tremendous lover of the fungi. Thank you, Danielle, for helping us to restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine and for helping to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients, for helping us to remember how our ancestors did it and to keep ourselves grounded and to remember there's a lot going on out there. Thank you, Sarah Ellen, for once again pushing the buttons and talking to me and just in general being wonderful. Thank you so much. I love you, Sarah Ellen. Green blessings and good night, everybody.